Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England. You are probably expecting a comment on the result of the Blood of Innocence competition. Grovelling apologies. I had to record this in advance. So as you listen to this, you can probably go to the website or the Facebook page and see the result. And also on Monday, I will try to put out a quick announcement. I won't frog march any of my family to the shed this time. There was universal outrage at my behaviour. I have spoken many times of the network I belong to, Agora Podcast Network. This month's featured podcast is Lands of Leviathan, a wide-ranging podcast on political science and international relations. If you want to find out more, hop along to landsofleviathan.com or indeed download it from iTunes or your normal podcatcher. Now then, this is episode 194, The Wars of the Roses. The Wars of the what? I hear you shout. You made us listen to the better part of 30 episodes on the subject, and now you're saying we're starting again? Well, I can imagine your outrage, gentle listener, if that was indeed the case. But it's not. In fact, very much the reverse. This week, I think it's time for us to lower the curtain on the subject, to put it all behind us, fun as it's been, and look forward to the sunny uplands of the first new dynasty we've met since 1155 and the arrival of the Plantagenets. It's welcome to the Tudors. We've had English rulers, Scandinavian, French... Now it's time for the Welsh. However, we immediately face a problem in when to close the Wars of the Roses, which date to use. Now, the 22nd of August, 1485, the Battle of Bosworth and the death of Richard III has been taken as the closing date. But, of course, that ignores the fact that the Wars of the Roses still very much dominate the reign of the new king and the new dynasty. So, another date could be the next battle in the series, the Battle of Stoke, 16th of June, 1487. But this in turn ignores the execution of a 67-year-old woman in May 1541 at Tower Hill in London. Margaret Poole had been in the Tower for over two years, living in the state expected of one of the richest members of the aristocracy. She was there essentially because her male relatives had been accused and found guilty of plotting. Margaret was defiant and unapologetic. It's said that in her cell were found scratched on the wall the words For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor, no not I. My faithfulness stands fast and so towards the block I shall not go. Nor make one step as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy, save thou me. I have to say, I can't really envisage someone as grand as Margaret Poole scratching on the wall but there's independent evidence from Eustace Chapuis, an imperial diplomat, of whom we'll no doubt hear a lot more in the future, 
that the poem accurately reflects Margaret's attitude, if nothing else. Of course, if she did write the poem, she should anyway have been accused of crimes against literature, but she seems to have avoided that one at least. Anyway, on the 27th of May, 1541, Margaret received a message that she was to be executed. Now, through the Wars of the Roses, we've now got used to much more political violence. But even Richard, who with the executions without trial of Hastings, Rivers and Grey probably took things to the limit one more time, even Richard didn't visit revenge on the women folk. And in Margaret Beaufort's case, he must have been sorely tempted. But the Tudors? Now the Tudors are something else. Most things were acceptable to the Tudors, to be honest, and so Margaret had just two hours to prepare to meet her maker and shuffle off this mortal coil. The decision was taken so quickly that only the executioner's lad was available. Margaret went to the block protesting. As she laid her head on the block, she twisted it from side to side, none of which helped the poor lad who effectively missed first time, hitting Margaret's shoulders. Hastily, he drew back the axe again and hack, missed again, hack after hack, until eventually the job was done. Why, I hear you ask, am I telling you all this? Well, because I do like telling you a grisly story for the main thing, but the feeble fig leaf is that Margaret Poole was one of the last surviving members of the Plantagenet family, the daughter of George, Duke of Clarence. So my laboured point is that the spectre of the Wars of the Roses hung even over the head of Henry VIII, more than 50 years after Bosworth Field. But we have to make a decision. And I'm going to make that decision the Battle of Stoke, because it allows me to make the point that dismissing the Wars of the Roses at Bosworth Field ignores that fact that for the inhabitants of England at the time, they had absolutely no idea that it was all over, anything but in fact. So what we'll do today is we'll have a quick look at the run-up to Stoke, and we'll then have a bit of a retrospective about the Wars of the Roses, a sort of what-did-the-Wars-of-the-Roses-ever-do-for-us sort of thing. And then in following episodes, we'll be able to launch into the Tudors. Although, I think that next week I'll probably bring us up to date on Europe, as it happens. Sound all right? If not, too late. So, we'd reached the position at the end of the last episode where, in a kind of bold stroke that is described as inspired if it works and impulsive as it doesn't, Richard III had been hacked to death in the heat of battle. Everything essentially stopped. Norfolk was dead, his son Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, had been captured, there was no son of Richard knocking about, of course. And so, in common with most of the battles in the Wars of the Roses, once the main protagonist was dead, no one kept fighting, although Stanley appears to have hacked down a few stragglers just for the fun of it. There were a few anxious faces around. William Stanley would have been feeling more than a little smug. He'd led that charge which effectively made Henry King. As he rode up to the scene, his big brother Thomas Stanley would have been wishing he'd moved as quickly as his brother. But nonetheless, he was married to Henry's mum, so everything should be peachy. Percy still up on the hill with his northern contingent, Percy would be feeling a little more anxious than that, and probably wondering how to play things. Percy had not engaged Henry's army, and there are two possible interpretations. The first is honourable, that the layout of the battle had placed Percy behind Norfolk's contingent, hemmed in by the marsh and indeed by Norfolk. And if things had gone on, he'd have moved forward to engage the Vere. But then, 
Richard's charge and death made it all irrelevant. Alternatively, Percy was a sneaky, pottage-eating surrender monkey who had taken the Stanley Road to perdition. He'd held back Richard's most loyal and trustworthy northerners until it was too late. Now, of course, the second solution has always been much more exciting. But all we know is that Henry imprisoned Percy after Bosworth, so Henry at least had a view of what the answer was, and it was the sneaky pottage one. And sadly, the sneaky pottage reputation was to follow Percy around, leading directly to his death, as it happens. Because pretty quickly, Henry was forced to recognise the Percy strength in the north, give him the benefit of the doubt, and reinstate him on parole, as it were. Percy re-established himself and built up again his network and affinity of noble families. Now, interestingly, this cost him £1,700 every year in payments to those knights and allies. And this was a stonking 42% of his income, which is a fascinating insight into what all this empire-building and livery and maintenance stuff cost in days medieval. 42% of his income. Now, as it happens, it all turned out to be money surprisingly poorly spent. In 1489, Percy responded to a tax revolt and met a mass riot of peasantry who attacked him personally, claiming that he'd betrayed good King Richard and should die. As the mob attacked and murdered him, Percy's knights stood by and studied their fingernails. I don't care too much for money, money can't buy me love and all that, but not sure the Fab Four were thinking of exactly this kind of situation when they wrote it, but if the cap fits and all that sort of thing. So back to Bosworth Field, where famously one of the Stanleys spotted Richard's gold circlet lying under a thorn bush. He picked it up, and with the cries of his troops, Stanley placed the crown on Henry Tudor's head, and Henry VII and the Tudor dynasty had arrived. Meanwhile, the indignities suffered by Richard are well known and have been confirmed by the discovery of his body. He was stripped of his armour. His body was slung over the back of a horse, either completely naked or semi-naked. His long hair was tied under his chin, and he accompanied Henry's army to their first stop at Leicester. Richard's body was not treated well. No doubt there was jeering and contempt and celebrations, and we know that his body was viciously and contemptuously stabbed in the buttocks. At the Franciscan Friary at Leicester, his body was laid out, naked except for a piece of black cloth in the knicker area, so that as many people as possible would be able to see, yep, they'd seen him, and he was in seriously poor shape. Then he was given a perfunctory burial in the chancel of the Franciscan Abbey, carried out at night, and put in a grave that looked rather small for him. Now I confess I have absorbed all that outrage of the way this king's body was treated, and tended to leap in on the anti-Tudor side of the scales. I was therefore surprised to discover that, of course, Richard III had a tomb in the abbey, and that if the tomb's epitaph is to be believed, it was fit to honour a king. Yes, epitaph, that also came as something of a shock. The epitaph survives. And it isn't a torrent of abuse by no means, OK? It says he held the kingdom by broken faith, but equally it says that he fought bravely in war. So there you go. For what it's worth, like many tombs, it appears to be the dissolution of the monasteries that does for Richard's tomb, rather than a mean-minded Henry VII. 
So, for the moment, we're going to ignore all of the immediate events of the reign. The first parliament, the search for legitimacy, marriages, coronations, the rewards, the punishments. We'll come back to all of that later. For now, the job is to get to the end of the Rolls of the Woeses. So, Henry at this point was just another temporary king of England. Like Edward, Henry and Richard before him, he would now have to prove that he could reign and deal with the almost inevitable rash of rebellions. He had to deal with a few key groups and a few potential opponents. Let's put them down as four. Firstly, die-hard Yorkists. And preeminent amongst these was Francis Lovell, the man raised higher than any other by Richard III. He had fled Bosworth, despite early reports that he'd been killed. He was attainted by Henry's Parliament and had no other route than rebellion to regain his wealth. Second group are Yorkists, claimants to the throne. The best of these claimants was Clarence's son, Edward, Earl of Warwick. But he'd been dealt with. Edward had been at Sheriff Hutton and was immediately taken to the Tower of London, where he would spend the rest of his life. But there were others with a claim too, and probably best was the Earl of Lincoln, John de la Poole, grandson of Richard of York, nephew to Edward IV. He'd done nothing wrong and had been accepted into the new king's grace. But the snake of ambition was due to bite his heel. He also had a younger brother, Edmund, who could similarly claim the throne. Oddly, for the third group of opposition, we need to look outside England. So third is Ireland. Richard of York had been appointed Lieutenant of Ireland back in 1447 and had established a powerful following there. Through the twos and fros of the Wars of the Roses, a powerful group of Anglo-Irish lords had essentially been able to establish a sort of home rule for Ireland in the name of the Yorkist monarchy. Now this level of independence was threatened by a new king without any of those old connections and loyalties. And finally, the last one is Margaret of Burgundy, Edward IV and Richard III's sister. Margaret by this time was Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, her husband Charles the Bold having died in the mud and ice in 1477. And indeed the days of the great Dukes of Burgundy were now over. But Margaret, through her stepson, Emperor Maximilian, was still rich and powerful. And from her home in Flanders, she would be a powerful supporter of Yorkist opposition until the day she died. The first challenge to Henry's rule came quickly in 1486, from Francis Lovell. Now, Henry must have been expecting a challenge. Lovell's challenge would give him a chance to understand the depth of Yorkist support. And in fact, the omens were good for him. Lovell focused on Yorkshire, as you might expect, Richard's old stamping ground. His confederate was a man called Humphrey Stafford. Sadly for the House of York, the whole thing was a physical malia. None of the local gentry could be persuaded to risk all by rebelling against their new king. Lovell fled. Stafford fled to sanctuary at his parish church and was dragged out by Henry. This was of course controversial and led to a new rule that sanctuary could no longer be claimed in matters of treason. So, round one to Henry. Meanwhile, John de la Poole, Earl of Lincoln, was playing along with Henry and was apparently reconciled. He was by his side when that first rebellion failed, for example but ambition had raised its ugly head. Meanwhile, his father, the rather non-entity Duke of Suffolk, appears to have had no interest in anything other than loyalty to the king of the time. But not Lincoln. 
Lincoln was plotting. Now, the most fertile ground for Henry's opponent now seemed to be Ireland. The Anglo-Irish lords had found they could not stomach the idea of a new king. They wanted that compliant regime of York, under which they had the independence that they wanted. And so, they schemed. Now, of course, they faced a problem. Who were the obvious candidates with a better claim than Henry? Henry was very lucky in that his obvious competitor had died on Bosworth Field and had had no offspring. Lincoln was a possibility, but someone more obvious would be much better. Now, it just so happened that in 1486 there were rumours circulating about Clarence's son, the Earl of Warwick, rumours that he'd escaped. And so it occurred to somebody, whether in Ireland or England, that we don't know where he is, but why not just get someone we can pass off as the Earl of Warwick, whether he's escaped or not? Now here's a new twist to the Wars of the Roses. The idea that you don't actually need a real claimant to the throne at all just makes something up. Maybe next time we could say that Edward IV went to a clinic to deal with some weight loss issues and now he's back, for example. The possibilities are endless. So the search was on. Lovell and Lincoln identified Oxford as a suitable place to look for a pretender. Oxford was close to manors owned by both of them. It was a place with a floating population. And they'd turned up someone there to help them, a priest called William Simmons. Lovell, hiding out in the fells of northwest England in Cumberland, seems to have got word somehow to Simmons, and someone duly turned up there, a young lad about the right age and without a father, called Lambert Simnel. Lambert may have been the son of a joiner, possibly of Flemish descent. Now, Simmons noticed that young Simnel was not just orphaned, he was, as the historian Polydor Virgil would later note, a comely youth and well-favoured, not without some extraordinary dignity and grace of aspect. So, Simmons took young Simnel to Ireland, and there he met with Thomas Fitzgerald, Chancellor of Ireland, his brother, Gerald Fitzgerald, 8th Earl of Kildare, the King's Deputy, and Walter Fitzsimons, the Archbishop of Dublin. In February 1487, the existence of a pretender came to the attention of King Henry and his council. The council discussed what should be done and agreed that they should start by hoiking the real Earl of Warwick from the Tower and parading him round London, which they duly did, and duly proved that you don't need a real claimant to have a rebellion. But the next thing Henry learned was that he'd been nursing a viper at his breast, if you'll pardon the melodrama. Lincoln fled and he fled to Margaret of Burgundy in Flanders. And there he was joined by Lovell, and there Margaret gave him the best support that he could hope for. Fifteen hundred nasty-looking German mercenaries and a captain to command them skilled in war. From there, they sailed to Ireland, to Dublin. And remarkably, in May 1487, Lambert Simnel was crowned as Edward VI of England. Presumably Lambert knew very little of what was going on, since he was but 10 or 11. But the plan was that Thomas Fitzgerald would lead 4,000 Irishmen to add to the German mercenaries. They would land on the northwest coast of England, where Lovell had been hiding out, and where he had some pals to help. They would raise the banners of York and march through England towards London, defeat the poxy usurper Henry, and crown their puppet king. He would be the ultimate coup. Hurrah for York, England, Ireland and St George! 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. On the 4th of June, the rebels landed on the northwest coast in Cumberland and marched eastward towards Yorkshire and Wensleydale where Lincoln may have hoped to taste the cheese most beloved of Wallace and Gromit. But more likely, he hoped to raise the gentry and swell the army from its four and a half thousand foreigners. And it seems some small numbers did join, and proclamations were issued from Masson, where the Scroops joined the revolt and took the message to York. But despite this, the most noticeable sound as the rebels turned south towards London was the swishing of skirts. The swishing of skirts being drawn aside by the gentry of England with absolutely no desire to get involved in yet another spat between the overprivileged. Plus, there were 4,000 half-naked kerns, Irish irregular soldiers, which didn't look like the most impressive army. So although the Germans looked rock hard, nope, on your way. Lovell and Lincoln's only chance now was speed, to leg it south with the speed of light before Henry could gather the men to resist him. And so by the 16th of June, they'd crossed the River Trent, traditional dividing line between north and south, and were near Newark in the east of England at a place called Stoke. Lincoln and Lovell were hoping that Henry's pants were hanging around his ankles, that they would make up for the lack of numbers by speed and catch Henry hopping, with pants round his ankles and a small army. But as it happens, Henry's pants were exactly where they should have been, and as Lincoln and Lovell took up position at the top of a hill, they faced an army twice their size, commanded by Tudor faithfuls, Jasper Tudor and the Earl of Oxford. The rebels were probably hoping they could take out a few of Henry's army with their German crossbowmen, and then have the royalists charge up the hill in fury, arriving knackered, to be butchered. And so they started with a swarm of crossbows and received back a deluge of arrows. And this was where the weakness of the rebel plan was revealed. Their Irish kerns possessed very limited armour indeed and were therefore being slaughtered by the arrow storm. And so it was plan B, a desperate charge at the Royalist army to hope they could be broken quickly. And for an hour stroke was matched by stroke and thrust by thrust, but the Royalist numbers and armour won out. And by the end of it as many as 4,000 of the rebels were dead. Lincoln was dead. Lovell fled again, was last seen in Scotland, but quickly disappears from history. Now young Lambert, or Edward VI, as he liked to be known, was captured by a knight, Robert Bellingham. The treatment of Lambert by Henry VII is rather interesting. I think if I'd been Henry, I'd have been tempted to lock him away. Probably he was too young to decapitate, but I'd have been tempted. Henry gave him a job in his kitchens, which is a remarkably intelligent thing to do. It would be terribly difficult to raise a standard of credible rebellion for a guy peeling the taters. Lambert is pretty elusive thereafter, but a couple of mentions do come up. He was apparently formally presented to Irish lords to stick their noses in the dung pile of their failed rebellion. In 1525 he's given some robes for a funeral, by which time he's become a falconer and there's a canon called Simnel in 1535 in Essex during the dissolution of the monastery there, and that's it. It is possible that the rebellion of 1487 was simply a rather elaborate job application to the royal kitchens by Simnel. 
If so, it worked. More to the point, the Battle of Stoke is a good place to call an end to the Wars of the Roses. It is important to note that the rest of Henry's reign will be carried out against the backdrop of the threat of rebellion, as we've said. But Stoke would be the last credible threat that actually led to a battle. And at the time, of course, it did look credible, especially with the German mercenaries. But the almost complete lack of support from the country was a very clear message. There was no groundswell of support to bring back a Yorkist dynasty, which had no clear leaders, and for a quarrel of which most of the country was by now heartily sick. Of course, saying goodbye to the Wars of the Roses is an emotional moment for me. It may be a moment of complete disinterest or great joy for you, I do not know, but I am shedding a quiet tear here, I can tell you. My first episode on the topic was October the 17th, 2015, 11 months ago, so we've covered about 35 years in about 30 episodes. Given the emotion of the moment, I suggest we pause. <gasps> Take a deep breath and take a little time to reflect on what it all means or meant. I suppose we ought to compose ourselves, forget about all the personalities, the ins and outs, the fortunes of the men and women involved, and think about a few questions. Having been thrown it from cradle to grave, from soup to nuts as it were, why did it happen? What impact did it have? What changed, if anything, about England? And why do we remember it all so much? But before all that, I have to lance a boil, put a demon to rest here publicly in front of you all. And it is possible I will upset some people for which I apologise. But hey, it's my podcast and I'll cry if I want to. It concerns Richard III. Hopefully I have been fair and honest to Richard. And I think I have declared my interest that in the most sad and nerdy way, and in a manner ill-befitting a, shall we say, mature person, that I've always been a Yorkist ever since I was a nipper, a tadpole, knee-height to a grasshopper and all of that. So in the days of my youth, I found every scrap of evidence I could to support the good name of Richard III, because he was the House of York. He was my guy. But having been through all of this, my attitude has fundamentally changed. I have realised that I should instead have been cursing the name of Richard III as the man who pretty much single-handedly destroyed the House of York. If I had Richard in front of me now, I would, without doubt, do the decent thing and put a good pint of ale in front of him, get him a bag of pork scratchings and all that. But then, I'd grasp him by the shoulders, look him in the eyes and say, Richard, you'd won. York had won. It was all over. England was stable, the monarchy restored, Lancaster in the dust, one poxy little loser left stuck in Brittany. The ball was in the back of the net. The fat lady was giving it her all. Result, they think it's all over, and it is now. And then, and then, you single-handedly threw it all away. In a mad fit of fear and panic, you handed it back to them on a plate. Richard III, Duke of Gloucester, I name you in the name of all that is good and holy, an utter, utter burke. I'd hope to leave it there, obviously, invite him to sup up and buy the next round, and maybe talk and move on to the Olympics and so on. Maybe he'd even give me a rueful smile or shrug, who knows? But it would have made me feel better. To try to recover my war and to make a serious point from all this, although we put the events of 1455 to 1487 together into one lump and call them the Wars of the Roses, I suspect it's more useful to think about it in two phases. 1455 to 71 and 1483 to 87. 
On the one hand, I find it difficult to buy that notion that we should take the cause all the way back to the deposition of Richard II in 1399. OK, maybe it set an unhelpful precedent, but Henry V had set the Lancastrians very firmly on the throne, and nothing could demonstrate that more effectively than the way that the political system dealt with a delicate minority of Henry VI. Really, that was a triumph of maturity and competence, snaps to the English political system. So the period 1455-71, to 71, and specifically 1459-71, to 71, was a period of civil war and political instability equal to pretty much anything that had gone before, or at least all the way back to the anarchy of Stephen and Matilda. But as I've said, Edward IV had won. Edward IV, he'd sorted it all out. So the reason for my rant at Richard reflects that 1483-7 to seems to me to have a different character, to have occurred for different reasons, though obviously linked. So there are lots of reasons banded about as to why the Wars of the Roses occurred at all. Overmighty subjects, bastard feudalism, God's judgment on the deposition of Richard II. But for different reasons, I think these can be rejected or minimised. Good kings, Edward I, Henry V, Edward IV, to name but a few, proved that managing powerful magnates was perfectly possible. In fact, the old idea that England's barons were out to rip everything up in a blaze of greed and ambition and less restrained by the king is no longer credible. They were, in fact, the king's natural allies as concerned as he was to maintain order. Bastard feudalism as a process seems simply a progression of feudalism, and it's clear that the sizes of noble retinues were nothing more than at most 300 for the absolutely most powerful. And as I've said, the minority of Henry VI seems to me to prove that the fundamentals of the English political system were sound after the deposition of Richard II. Nope. What it came down to in 1455-71 to 71 was not over-mighty subjects, but an under-mighty king. The medieval political system could simply not work with a king who would not, could not, do his job. Henry VI's incompetence was the direct cause of that conflict. Hence why 1483-7 to 7 seems fundamentally different to me, even in a sense, even if it was in fact fought between those two dynasties. While 1455-71 to 71 was marked by this vicious and pretty intense civil war caused by one man's incompetence, there's no way the same claim can be made about 1471-83. to 83. Edward IV ruled then peacefully and successfully. The breakdown in 1483 was caused by the actions of one man, Richard. Whether you think honourably or dishonourably motivated, was not caused by the incompetence of the monarch. Did the Wars of the Roses change anything then, apart from the ruling dynasty. In times of trouble in the past, for example, it's been an opportunity for the role of Parliament to change. Think of the wars of de Montfort and Henry III. But really nothing of that occurs. The Parliaments of these years are remarkably compliant, eager in most cases just to confirm what the guy with the biggest stick at that time asked of them. It's worth noting that the 15th century is where the principle that in times of peace the king should live of his own is established. And it's a principle that has massive consequences for royal finances and particularly royal freedom of action abroad. But really, that's established during the reign of Henry IV and reconfirmed through Henry VI's reign. 
The church is another area where really very little happens as far as the relationship between church and state is concerned. As far as the dynastic struggle is concerned, very rarely is the church involved in taking sides. The involvement of folk like John Morton as Bishop of Ely is pretty exceptional. As far as papal relationships are concerned, English kings, from Edward III to Henry V, had been keen to ensure that papal jurisdiction was carefully restricted in England and that the king's rights over appointments fiercely defended, and the Pope had too many troubles of its own to cause any more problems with them. But that's independent of the Wars of the Roses, really. A further claim that used to be made was that the wars had destroyed the ancient nobility of England. But again, even this claim doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. The historian Macfarlane has argued convincingly that the failure of noble families hung in normal times at 25% or thereabouts anyway. Even in the impact of the wars on ordinary folk of the day, anything exceptional is very much open to challenge. It seems fair enough to point at the period 1459-61 as being years of chaos that must have had an impact on the lives of a significant proportion of England. But outside of that, disturbance was reasonably localised and short-lived. And the French chronicler Philippe de Comines was in a position to judge and probably had it right when he wrote, In my opinion, out of all of the countries which I've personally known, Angleterre is the one where public affairs are best conducted and regulated with least damage to the people. So, was it all just a spasm? Of no import, but quite a lot of fun at the safe distance of 500 or more years. It's worth making the point, by the way, that while we tend to think of these years as exceptionally violent and troubled, what was happening in England was outstanding only in quite how unexceptional it was in the context of Western Europe. Scotland was a basket case of warring factions. France was torn between Burgundy and Valois, Burgundy and Armagnac, Spain in the grips of a hideous civil war until 1480. So the fact that the war seemed so exceptional say more about the stability of English politics than it does about its instability. But there are some things that seem notable. One was the importance of regional politics, and specifically evidence of the north-south divide in England. Both in Margaret's march south in 1460 and Richard III's usurpation, resentment between north and south burned brightly. Another was the growing importance of public opinion. Folk like Warwick, Edward, Richard and Henry make strenuous appeals to public opinion, and feel that opinion will matter, whether in recruitment for armies, raising taxation or representation in Parliament. The public gets involved. In Kent, local grievance was used by Falkenberg to take the fight to York. Lord Scales was killed by the London Waterman in 1460, despite having been spared by his peers. As we've heard, Percy would also lose his life at the hands of the mob. Up and down the country, people had opinions and voiced them. In Henry IV and Richard we begin to see the centralisation of finance through the hands of the king as a more efficient and effective way of government, and that will grow under the Tudors. So there's a change during the Wars of the Roses. But the biggest impact would seem to be about royal power and authority. What impact did the Wars of the Roses have on the power, prestige and authority of the king? Surely, given the fact that the throne changed hands violently five times between 1461 and 85, the mystique and authority of the monarch was damaged forever. Well, actually, I think not. In fact, 
rather reverse. Two angles to this. Firstly, the wars showed that to succeed, kings had to be richer than everyone else. Henry's victory over Richard in 1485 gave the crown personal control over all Richard's northern lands and the Duchy of Lancaster. Both Richard and Henry followed the same policy of keeping these lands in their own hands rather than using them as patronage, to the ultimate profit of the throne, to make them richer than any of their subjects. Secondly, the wars seem to have shown in stark and unarguable relief that the medieval system of government could not operate without an effective monarch. It was a message repeated and amplified in the following century, the message of the horror and destruction that followed from challenging the supremacy of the king. The historian A.J. Pollard, for example, suggests that maybe it's here that starts the idea that the state should possess the monopoly of force. Now, it's equally argued that in the end it's the growing expense of warfare and the power of artillery that removes the ability for nobles to challenge the state, but isn't the idea, the philosophy, more important? That individual military power is to be deplored, that correctly regulated, the state should have the monopoly of power. So there we go, my final thoughts, and we can now officially put the Wars of the Roses finally to bed. Next, we're going to have a few scene setters. So next week, I'll bring us up to date with the situation in Europe so that you can keep Henry VII in the context of the world around him. And then, sadly, I have another week off and then another scene setter, a brief survey of England at the dawn of the Tudor age. And then we can start to think about Henry VII and his reputation. So thanks to all of you who took part in the debate about the princes. Some of the comments were brilliant. He really put you back into it. Loved the whole thing. Thanks to my monthly donators and to my supporters on Patreon the same. And to all my new donators this month, thank you so much. And to all you good folk out there for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. 